Well, for, for those who might be interested, exactly three years ago to this very day, Belinda and I were in Florida. And, and it was indeed three, three years ago to, to this very day. And as. <laughs> what was that? Nothing. Right, okay. Yeah. Anyway, as. as as predestination would have it, um, there was a one of the holiday programmes on last night and we, we videoed it and watched it just before we came out and of course it was, where was it from? It was from Orlando, you know, Gl Gloria Honeyford, or no, Judith Chalmers, not my favourite presenter and there she was, you know, this was filmed obviously a couple of months ago, you know, midwinter and, you know, sort of like, it, it, it was sort of like 85 degrees. Yeah. Um, the, the sea temperature was 75 degrees, <laughs> bright sunshine, and I'm so fed up. Do you mind if I go home now? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> yes, that, 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 that just seemed... Um, yeah. A taste of paradise in, indeed. Let's, let's just, just pray before we start. Father, as we <coughs> turn to your word, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit will lead us and empower us and enable me in my speaking and other people as they hear your word. Oh Lord, just be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, okay, well, we, we um, return to the expository series uh, today and uh, we, we start on James, so uh, sort of James verse by verse. And uh, let me say it was quite some time ago that I actually prepared this and when I did it was prior to my big change of Bibles. Now it seemed to me far wiser to, to resort back to my trusty RSV for this series than try and redo it all as it were based on a different Bible. So. In actual fact, um, I, I'm going to be re returning to the RSV tonight. And what we're going to do tonight is really introduce it. We're not actually going to be diving into the text yet. Um, so, so, so for Lee, who came well prepared to catch me out in the actual text of James, tough, you'll have to wait <laughs> till next time now. Apparently he has... Uh, what is it, full notes on the first three verses or something, is it? <laughs> so, um, you know, tonight, you know, a general introduction to, to the letter of, of James and get the, the whole kind of background. Now, uh, best place to start is, who is he? Who is James? We've got a letter in the Bible and it is written by a bloke called James. As we're going to see, it's written to Christians everywhere, but predominantly Jews, all right? Uh, Jews who have got saved. But who is he? Now, the first thing to say is that, that, that James was a very common name at the time amongst the Jews, all right? Now, when Greek gets translated into English, because of course, the Bible, the New Testament, was written in Koine Greek, and it's translated into English in our Bibles. Now, when Greek gets translated into English, with the Greek New Testament covering many Hebrew names, but having translated them from Hebrew into Greek, all right, then James 
is what Jacob ends up as. So, in actual fact, James is the equivalent name of Jacob, alright? Jacob being the Hebrew, James is what happens to it when the Hebrew has been translated into Greek and then the Greek has been tra translated into English, alright? So, in effect, the name James is the equivalent of the names Jacob, a very common uh, Jewish name. Now, there are various characters called James in the New Testament and uh, we need to sort of like break them down to find out who is the author of the letter that we're going to be looking at. Now, obviously, we'll, we'll start with the obvious ones. And in doing this, if you go to Matthew chapter 4. <coughs> Matthew chapter 4. And um, in verse 21... And this is very early on in the ministry of Jesus when he's starting to call his disciples. And in verse 21, we have, And going on from there, he, that is Jesus, saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the note with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Um, so... There's a James. Go over to Luke 9 and we'll just see Luke's account of Jesus calling James and Zebedee. Luke 9 and uh, verse 54. Um, sorry, not Luke's account, but just a reference to something that happened later on. Um, we'll actually read from, uh, from verse 51. When, when the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the people would not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So here is Jesus, you know, sort of like spreading the gospel to the Samaritans. The Samaritans were kind of half Jewish, and the, the, the Jews did not like them at all, and they didn't like the Jews. And here, their prejudice against Jesus, because he was Jewish and going to Jerusalem, you know, it shows, and they don't want to know. And when his disciples James and John saw it, so here's James and John, the two brothers, they said, Lord, you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and consume them. Sounds like they need to hear the Law and Grace series, doesn't it? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them. And there you have another, you know, sort of reference to James and John, the two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, all right. Um, and, of course, we got James, but it's John, his brother, who wrote the Gospel of John, this John of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that's the John who wrote the Gospel and the letters and Revelation, all right? Now, what I want to say at this point is that this James here is not the James who wrote the letter, right? I'll show you why. Go to Acts chapter 12. See, process of elimination, isn't it? Acts chapter 12, and I'll show you why it's not that James. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. Now, you're at the timing of here is long before the letter of James was written, all right? About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, just, just try and piece this together, because it's good to, you know, for you to get an idea of how Bible teachers work, all right? <laughs> the letter of James was written after this story was written. You know, I mean, much later, all right? This is fairly early on in the 
life of the early church, the letter of James was written much later. Here we read that James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, got killed. Now therefore, because he got killed, before the letter was written, we therefore, with reasonable certitude, deduce that he was not the one who wrote the letter. Can you see how it works? So, scrub James, the son of Zebedee, alright? It wasn't him. It wasn't him at all. Rumours that it was his sister's Florence, or possibly even his dog Dougal. But, but the son of Zebedee, it wasn't him, okay? Right, now then, so James number one, scrubbed. Now, go back to Matthew in chapter 10. Because if your first James isn't the right one, look for another. Matthew chapter 10. Yep. Matthew chapter 10, and um, verse 2. The names of the twelve apostles are these. Now, this is Jesus calling the twelve disciples to be apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. Now, it's not him, because his name is Simon Peter, all right? That is, that is simple logic and detective work, this is. And Andrew, his brother... James, the son of Zebedee, now he's the one we've already rejected him, alright, it's not him, died too soon, alright, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Thomas, I was going to say, <laughs> Thomas and Masu, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, now there you've got another James, the son of Alphaeus, is it him? Go to Acts chapter 1. Let's just see him again. Acts chapter 1. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, verse 13. And when they had entered, this is after Jesus has ascended into heaven and, you know, they're kind of waiting to be baptised in the Spirit. <coughs> when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, I'm doing it again, <laughs> Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus. So there he is again, he's still around on the day of Pentecost, not dead yet, okay. So here we've got another possibility. Is it James the son of Alphaeus? It's not James the son of Zebedee, is it James the son of Alphaeus, one of the apostles? And the answer is no, it's not. It's not him either. Now, how do I know that? Well, I'll tell you. From this verse onwards that we've just read in Acts, I mean, we hear about James, the son of Alphaeus, in the Gospels. He was one of the twelve apostles, all right? So we read about him in the Gospels. We read about him here. After Acts chapter 1, you do not hear any word of James, the son of Alphaeus, again. He is never heard of again. He vanishes from the pages of the Bible here. As do Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Thaddeus, and Simon. All those apostles of the twelve that Jesus called, after this verse here, they're never heard of again. They just vanish, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that anything went wrong with them. It doesn't mean that they fell away. It doesn't mean that they failed to fulfill their mission as apostles. But what it means is that God took them off of the local scene and simply the Bible doesn't home in in any way on what God was doing through them 
Now we can certainly be sure that God did great things through them in various places, as indeed he did great things through the apostles, who we do read about from this point onwards. Um, you know, but the point is that James, the son of Alphaeus, along with the other apostles I mentioned, they just vanish from the pages of scripture, not recorded in any way at all. Now we get suggestions from history, can't be absolutely sure, but history you know, suggests that, for instance, Thomas, or Doubting Thomas, as he was known, uh, sort of like the one who said, Lord, I won't believe it's you unless I actually put my finger in the holes in your body, Doubting Thomas. Now, history suggests that he took the gospel to Persia and India. But the point is, the Acts of the Apostles doesn't cover the spread of the gospel to Persia and India. Can you see? Obviously, there had to be a limit to what God recorded and what he didn't. And, uh, you know, so at least half of the apostles just vanished off to various parts of the world, and obviously God used them, but the Bible doesn't record what they got up to. So, um, therefore, this letter, it wasn't written by either of the apostles. Not the son of Zebedee, he got killed too soon, and not the son of Alpheus, he kind of vanished, we don't know where to. Now, of those who remain, there's only one possibility for who could have written the letter of James. And uh, I put it to you that it is him. And, in fact, it is Jesus' own brother, or half-brother. Go to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. <coughs> Matthew chapter 13, and uh, find verse 53. It says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his own country, so he's gone back now into the area where he was brought up as a child, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished, and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are his... Not, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all this? So here Jesus has gone back to his home area, as it were, and the people who knew him as a child and knew his family because they were still there are saying, you know, well, how, how can this be? We know this bloke. You know, his mum is here and his brothers are here, all right? And one of the brothers here is called James. Now, just, just notice at this point that another of his brothers was called Judas, alright? Um, incidentally, we don't know what happened to Joseph. Um, from, from the story of when Jesus was 12 years old in the temple, from that point on, Joseph isn't mentioned at all, and we don't know what happened to him. And certainly a reference like this suggests that whatever happened to him, it happened to him sometime before because otherwise he'd have been referred to. And obviously the chances are that he died, very possibly a long time before this. So obviously Joseph is dead, but his mother and his four brothers and his sisters were still around. And uh, one of them is called James. So Jesus had a brother called James, or really I should say a half-brother, because Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. Mary was his mother, Joseph wasn't his father, God was, okay? So James was like his half-brother. Um, see more on this, go, go to Galatians. 
Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. You'd have thought there's going to be so much family trees in this, you'd have brought a chainsaw, wouldn't you? Galatians chapter 1 and uh, verse 18. And just this is Paul, Paul speaking. Um, he's writing here to the Galatians and he's giving them information about what you know what he did after he got converted, blah blah blah. And then he says, Then after three years I went up Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, then he says, After fourteen years I went up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So this was after that meeting he's just spoken about. This is fourteen years later. And then just go to verse 9, when speaking of that meeting, he says, and when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So there you've got James again, okay, the brother of Jesus. So then, what we've got is that this James, the brother or half-brother of Jesus, was a leader in the Jerusalem church. Now, he's referred to as an apostle, all right, but he wasn't one of the twelve. Remember when we did the Church Life series, we did Apostleship 1, 2, and 3. Jesus was number one, quite unique. The twelve were number two, quite unique. But number three, apostles are simply anyone who are used by God to open up a fresh area of work. And, uh, you know, in fact, James was, you know, sort of very much the driving force behind the Jerusalem church. And he was an apostle, and God used him, you know, to do some amazing things. So he was an apostle in sense three, but not in sense one and two. And if that doesn't make the slightest bit of sense, you'll have to listen to the church life series, okay. Um, so the point is that here we've got the brother of Jesus a leader in the Jerusalem church. Um, now, do you remember in Matthew 13, when we saw the thing about the brothers of Jesus, that we saw Judas, that one of his brothers was called Judas. Now, the names, when you've got all this thing, the, the Hebrew into the Greek, and then the Greek to the English, all right, things happen to names because of the transliteration. And Judas and Jude are exactly the same names, all right? And the Judas, who we read about there, another brother of Jesus, is the Jude who wrote the letter of Jude. All right? So if you um, just, just, just flick over to Jude, says, oh, you've got 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then you've got Jude. All right? Um, and in the first verse he said, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. I mean, obviously, neither James nor Jude, when they write, kind of take the approach, hey, we're Jesus' brothers. Because that could have been misconstrued, that they were trying to get some kind of authoritative position 
that they didn't have. And also, they would have been very loath to refer to themselves in that way, given that they knew that Jesus was the Lord of glory. And so here, Jude identifies himself as the brother of James, and therefore also the brother of Jesus as well. So you can see this is very much with the Jesus' family. The New Testament is a little bit of a family affair here. And, uh, you know, to that extent, quite right too. Um, and, of course, it's good to know that the brothers of Jesus did get saved. And it wasn't just James and Jude, and Jude either. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, and uh, in verse 14, Acts chapter 1, and uh, verse 14, it says, All these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So, in effect, it's good to know that Jesus's family got converted. It doesn't mention the sisters here, but that would be normative for Hebrew writing at this time. But I think we can, you know, sort of be fairly sure um, that his sisters got saved as well. So, I mean, that was, you know, that's, that's, that's nice, you know, that when he was actually going around preaching, they didn't believe in him. They rejected him. But certainly later on, they did get saved and they believed in him. So that's, that's, that's rather good. And it's this James, the brother of Jesus, who is the author of the letter of James that we're going to be looking at. Let's see a bit more of him, because uh, that's, that's what tonight is all about, to get the background, who is this guy, what kind of character is he. And let's see a couple more verses. Go to Acts 12 um, and find verse 17. And uh, just, just, just to see that, that, that James was a significant presence in the Jerusalem church. Acts 12, verse 17. Now, this is after Peter has been released from prison by the angel, etc., etc. Um, and uh, in verse 17, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, you know, these are the people in the house that he's gone to. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell this to James and to the brethren. So, you know, I mean, James was a very close friend of Peter, you know, so, I mean, you know, when Peter, you know, sort of got saved from prison, you know, and the angel, you know, sort of like set him free, he was very keen that James should know, make sure you tell James, quick, go and tell him. Um, and then verse, uh, chapter 15, and uh, in verse 13, and this is like uh, during the big debate between, you know, like the Gentiles, where do Gentile converts, uh, you know, stand in relationship to the Mosaic law, blah, 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 the big debate is going on. And then in, in verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brethren, listen to me. And what happens, you've got this big church council, a tremendously important affair, and it's James who appears to be chairing it, in the sense that he is certainly looked up to in the Jewish church as being one of the leaders who, in a, a situation of such importance as you've got here, and we'll be seeing a bit more about it later, is the one who kind of naturally, as it were, takes the chair. So he was certainly a central figure in the church in Jerusalem. Now, 
where we've got to move on to now, because we need to see more about this guy, James, the brothers of, of Jesus. And as we do that, we're going to move into some very stormy waters indeed. And, uh, you know, might actually take the lid off of something that was happening in the early church that you might not have been fully aware of. It's uh, quite, quite interesting, you know, sort of like a real sort of like, you know, political stuff, which was quite fascinating. And also, you'll, I think, appreciate a bit tonight why it was that I wanted to do the Law and Grace series before we did this one, you know, hence the big delay on this. Now, if you go to Acts 21, and uh, we'll read these verses, and uh, I think maybe you'll, um, you know, start to think, hmm, yeah, something interesting is going on here. Acts chapter 21, and uh, we'll read from verse 17. Acts 21 from verse 17. Um, when we had come to Jerusalem, now is the we there because it's Luke writing, okay, you know, the we is because Luke was with Paul at this time. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related, one by one, the things that God had done amongst the Gentiles through him. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. What then is to be done? This is James talking to Paul. We have, for, uh, do therefore what we tell you. So Paul is getting his orders here. We have four men who are under a vow. This would have been one of the purification vows of the law of Moses. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain, and this is the letter that was written as a result of the church council back in chapter 15. We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from unchastity, i.e. they're simply reaffirming the covenant with Noah, all right? Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself with them, and went into the temple to give notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for every one of them. Now, does that raise a question, what on earth is going on here? What's happening is that Paul, okay, he has gone to visit the church in Jerusalem and to fill them in on all the marvellous things that God has been doing through him in regards to the Gentiles. Now, the controversy as to whether the Gentiles should be under the law was settled in a visit prior to this. 
And the circumcision party, who were arguing that Gentiles who get saved ought to come under the law of Moses, they were refuted. And the church in Jerusalem said, no, the Gentiles, they're not to come under the law of Moses, they're under grace. No problem at all. So all that has been settled, okay? Now Paul, he goes back to the church again, and he visits, and it's James who's doing the talking. And what James, in effect, says to him is, hey, it's great, great to hear what God's been doing through you with the Gentiles. That's, that's great. God's been doing marvellous things here with the Jews, Paul. We're seeing loads and loads of people converted, which they were. Absolutely true. And James says, you know, and these, these guys, they're zealous for the law. They're zealous for Moses. And the problem is, Paul, they've heard rumours that, that you are kind of teaching that you don't have to be under the law. And I'll tell you, if, if, if word gets out, we're going to have trouble. So here's what I want you to do, Paul. I want you to do and you know to go and really, really do some mosaic stuff. You know, go and do it and show these people that you're under the law as a Jew in the same way that they are. Okay? And uh, so in effect, what's happened is that the Jerusalem church, having established that Gentiles who got converted didn't come under the law because they were under grace. They now end up in, in this amazing compromise with the circumcision party and are operating a policy that if a Jew gets converted, he stays under the law of Moses. All right. Now, why are they doing this? And there are sort of two reasons. It's difficult for us to understand how ingrained the law, Old Covenant, was for a Jew at this time. I mean, it was their life. And when they got converted, it was very, very difficult for them to let the law go. And I would say you've, you can see this today, a similar principle, in how hard Christians find it to let their unbiblical traditions go, if you see what I mean. That sometimes that old life, religiously, can really hang on quite tenaciously. And so it really was a genuine struggle for these guys. Paul, you know, Paul didn't do too badly, but clearly the Jerusalem church were, you know, sort of really, they were Christians, genuine orthodox Christians, they were preaching the good news about Jesus, they were living holy lives, but they were also back under the law in a big way and, you know, requiring that all converted Jews should be as well. So that was the first reason. It was so much in their blood and it, it took a very long time uh, for it to get out of their blood. But then secondly, it was an attempt, and this is perhaps slightly more subtle, it was an attempt to make Christianity more acceptable to the people they lived amongst, i.e. the Jews. And isn't there always that temptation? That, that the bit of Christianity, whatever bit that is the most controversial, the most offensive at any one time, that's the bit that is really tempting to remove, isn't it? Um, you know, and, and for them in Jerusalem then, the biggest offence was that we're not under law but under grace. And so they, they left that bit out. 
And so really what they were doing is that they were trying to make Christianity more acceptable to the Jews. Um, let's, let's really see, go to Galatians and, and let's kind of... Galatians chapter 5. And, and just remind ourselves of what the truth about this is. Because in effect, what what we're just beginning to see here now is, is a doctrinal battle that was going on. It was a fight that was going on in the church. And fights did go on. And, and sometimes amongst, you know, the really faithful guys as well. I mean, they were human, as we're going to see. And this was a battleground, you know, for the heart of the church that was going on. And we need to, um, you know, sort of like understand or reaffirm just what the actual truth of God's Word is, and in Galatians 5, and of course you'll understand really now why we did the Law and Grace first, because there's a lot I won't have to go over in this Bible study, because of course you know it all. Right, now then, Galatians 5, in the first four verses, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set, you, set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now I, Paul, say to you, that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Because obviously if you want to live your Christian life on the basis of law, then you're not partaking of the grace that God is making available do you? And, uh, you know, and so the point is that, that here in Galatians you've got Paul's fight with the circumcision party and Paul's real battle with them is that they were trying to get Christian Gentiles to live under Judaism. The circumcision party who were Jews and Christians, genuine Christians, what they were doing, they were going around churches where Gentiles were being converted and they were saying, these Gentiles must now also become proselytes to Judaism. They must be circumcised, they must come under the law. And of course these guys really caused deep chaos in people's lives. And Paul fought them tooth and nail, alright? I mean, not only does Paul say no to it in his teaching, but he, he, he treats it as being the most dreadful false teaching, even to the extent that elsewhere in Galatians, he, you know, he says the, you know, the famous verse, I wish that you know, those who would trouble you will go all the way and castrate themselves. That was because he said that would shut them up, wouldn't it? Or at least their false teaching would be in, you know, sort of like soprano. It was that kind of idea, that kind of sarcasm that he's talking about. He's saying that would take care of them, that would shut them up. And all Paul wanted was to shut the circumcision party up because they were spreading such error and confusion and devastation amongst new converts from the Gentiles. So, I mean, Paul had no doubts in his mind at all that the idea that Gentiles, having found the Lord, ought to come under the law, Paul very clearly said, look, absolutely not okay. But the question we've got to deal with here, okay, is, but was it right for Jewish Christians to live under the Mosaic law? That's the question. Now, firstly, Paul didn't himself. 
I mean, you know, Paul lived as a free man. Um, go to Galatians chapter 3 and uh, see some other verses that are pertinent here. Um, Galatians chapter 3 and find verse 23. And, you know, this is very much Paul here writing to, to Jewish Christians themselves. So, we're asking the question, okay, Gentiles who got converted, they didn't have to come under the law? No, of course not. But the Jewish Christians, the Jewish ones, do they have to live under the law? That's what James, speaking on behalf of the Jerusalem church, was trying to enforce on Paul, alright? So then, let's, let's see what Paul says here. He says, now before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed. So the, the, the law was our custodian. Now that word custodian is the Greek word, a rich Greek family would have a living teacher who raised the kids, brought them up and taught them, blah, 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 until they were adult and didn't need them anymore. So the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. Now the law was their custodian. Paul says we're no longer under it. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. He says, look, you're adult sons now in Christ. So uh, the adult son doesn't need its custodian anymore. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what, what Paul is, is, is saying there is no, of course Christians don't remain, uh, Jews don't remain under the law when they come to the Lord. The law, the old covenant, was only there to set the scene and prepare the way for the new covenant. When the new covenant comes, the old covenant is dead. It's gone. And that's what Paul's saying. So we're seeing, no, the answer is that James and the Jerusalem church were 100% and entirely wrong. All right. Um, let's... Let's go to, to Hebrews, find Hebrews chapter 8, and Hebrews, another letter, rather like James, but written like James specifically to Jewish Christians. And um, Hebrews chapter 8, and find verse 8. This is all stuff we saw in the law and grace thing, but, you know, serious, but we need to, to clarify it here. Um, now he says, for he finds fault with them when he says, and now he's, he's quoting from Jeremiah, the days will come, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the one I made with their fathers. All right. And that, that then go down to verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my laws into their hearts and write them in their minds, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the new covenant that's going to come, that didn't work externally like the law of Moses. It worked on the inside. It changed people on the inside. And uh, then in verse 13, it says, In speaking of a new covenant, he treats the first as obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So then, we've got the answer to our question. Do Jews, when they get saved and come to Jesus, 
do they continue under the law? Should they be under the law? And the answer is, of course, no, absolutely not. On this one, James and the Jerusalem church were completely wrong. Paul was completely right in his teaching, but James and the early church were completely wrong. Now then, go back to Galatians and find chapter 2. Chapter 2. And um, we'll read the, well, the, the first 15 verses. Right, okay. This is Paul. We saw this earlier. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up by revelation, i.e. God directly told him to, and I laid before them, but privately, before those who were of repute, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, lest somehow I should be running, or had run, in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of false brethren secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to them we did not yield submission even for a moment, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who are reputed to be something, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who were of repute added nothing to me. I, the apostles back in Jerusalem, all said, Paul, you, you, what you're preaching is the true gospel of Jesus. But on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for the mission to the circumcised worked through me also for the Gentiles, i.e. Jesus. And when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they would have us remember the poor, which very thing I was keen to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And with him the rest of the Jews acted insincerely, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So, what we've got here is that Paul, he is resisting, at this point, the circumcision party. He's, he's gone up to Jerusalem, he's found no problems, alright? You know, he's, he's explained to them, you know, sort of about, you know, the fact that the Gentiles can't be expected to live under the law, and no problem at all. Uh, James is being completely biblical about it all. At that point, no particular problem, okay? 
But then we get his story about when Peter came on the scene. And there's Peter having fellowship in this Gentile town with Gentile Christians. No problem at all. And something happens that reveals to us that even though it hadn't become too blatant at that point, there was something going on in the Jerusalem church and something going on that wasn't too good either. Because what happened was that the men who turned up had been sent by James, all right? Now, Jerusalem was Peter's home church. He was based there. He travelled out from it a lot, but he was based there. And some guys turn up from the church and they've been sent by James. Now, here's Peter eating with Gentiles, which under the law you weren't supposed to do. You could only eat with Gentiles if they've become proselytes, if they've become Judaizers, okay? So here's Peter having fellowship with Gentile believers, no problem at all. And then these guys from the Jerusalem church turn up. Now then, what happens is that Peter withdraws from them. In effect, he puts the Gentile Christians out of fellowship. He withdraws. He won't eat with them. He won't break bread with them. He won't have anything to do with them. And his hypocrisy here reveals the battle that was going on in the Jerusalem church. Because the point is, Peter was frightened. He was frightened of what James and the Jerusalem church would think if they heard that he was eating with Gentiles. So what happened was, he drew back. Now, Paul, quite rightly, because Peter, an apostle, a leader, Paul was absolutely right in rebuking Peter in front of the Gentile Christians whom Peter had just rejected. So, Paul was right to do that. But can you see, Peter, seeing the circumcision party, these guys, James has sent them, and Peter, he withdraws from the Gentiles. Why? He's terrified of what might happen when the Jerusalem church find out and, of course, he had to eventually go back there, you see. And so, we're seeing the great Peter frightened of his own church and what they would think. And what we're seeing here is, is, is a struggle with and against false teaching that went so deep in Christians because it was there before they got converted. Can you see what I mean? The fact that they were Jews, the fact that they were under the law, the fact they had Moses, the Old Testament, that went so deep in them that the fact that Christianity meant that all that was passing away and that the gospel they now preached was overriding all that completely, it was so difficult for them to actually take that on board. They couldn't handle it. It was, if you like, too much in their blood. And they were human beings. It wasn't just that there was a battle going on doctrinally amongst Christians in the church, but part of the push behind it was the feeling that because they were Jews, wouldn't they be so much more likely to see Jews converted if they compromised with their own people? And there you've got it again. Whatever element of the gospel is the most offensive to society around us, the truth of the matter is that's the element that actually needs to be in the forefront. You see? Knock that out, and that is what the Jerusalem church were trying to do. The gospel meant the law is dead, it's gone. You won't be under law, you'll be under grace. But the law was everything to Israel. It was sacrosanct. You don't touch Moses and the law. 
And so the Jerusalem church, what they were doing, they were toning the message down to try and make Christianity more acceptable to their peers. And of course that is always a dreadful mistake. It is always a great danger to tone down or to play around, to tamper with God's word, as Paul refers to it in one letter, to do that because you're more worried about what people think about you than what the Lord thinks about you. Okay. And so here we're seeing that Paul was able to maintain the correct teaching. But we've got now to, um, to go back to Acts 21 where we started because we've got to now have a look at this thing that Paul is now, James having told him to do it, Paul is now diving right back under the law. Just fine, you know, we're not actually going to read through it again, but we've got to ask, you know, sort of, what exactly is happening here? Why now does Paul, after this fight that he's had to maintain the truth as opposed to the error. Why is it that he now starts doing mosaic purification rites? Well, let me say a few things about it. Firstly, it didn't require him to act wrongly towards the Gentile Christians um, because this is purely Jews. The issue here is James and Paul and the Jews. That's the issue here. So it it doesn't require Paul to act in the hypocritical way that Peter had done, all right, because the Gentiles aren't involved here. Secondly, and there's a sense in which I'm speaking in Paul's defence here. I'm not saying what he did was right, but, you know, you'll get the picture as it unfolds. But secondly, the Jerusalem church, with James as, his, you know, its spokesman, didn't really give Paul a lot of choice here, did they? In effect, what happened, they, they, they railroaded him. They railroaded him, they bullied him. Paul kind of turns up and he suddenly realises that the entire Jerusalem church and the apostles, you know, like James and Peter and, you know, sort of blah, 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 and the ones that were left. Um, and, and, and I think it's true to say Paul didn't want to mess with them, all right, because he knew this was quite a big issue and they felt strongly about it. In effect, they railroaded him, and Paul bottled it. I think he probably thought, no, it'd be, uh, it'd be kind of like, it would be politic for me to just give in here. I don't want to get in a fight with the Jerusalem church and the apostles and the elders. I, I just don't want to do it. So, I mean, the point is, the Jerusalem church, they're bullying him. They really don't give him any... I mean, P uh, James said to him, this is what we require of you. I mean, you know, sort of no kind of, you know, look, go away and pray about it and test it. Paul is getting his orders here. And I think he decided, I think I'm going to obey him. That's, that's probably best for, for a quiet life at the moment. You see, because the Jerusalem church didn't want any trouble. Paul was turning up. He had a reputation. The Jews in Jerusalem were, you know, sort of like, you know, saying, oh, here comes Paul. He's anti-Moses, blah, blah, blah. And the Jerusalem church, wanting to avoid trouble on the issue of the law, wants really Paul to, you know, say, look, Paul, go and do something really Jewish and show them that they're wrong. Now, of course, the point was the crowds were right, actually. It wasn't Paul was anti-Moses. He wasn't doing anything disrespectful. He was simply teaching, we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. But the Jerusalem church didn't want the trouble that they smelt in the air 
in Jerusalem and they said, Paul, we want you to do this, all right? Um, and, and, and thirdly, Paul submitted to them. He, he took the attitude of submit to them, you know, sort of like submit ye one to another. And in so doing, he changed the policy that he had of non-cooperation. Now, in Galatians, we saw how he outlined, didn't he, that he wasn't going to cooperate with, with the false teaching at all. He wouldn't submit to it for a moment, okay. He changes his policy here, and, uh, and he decides to give in and to submit. And uh, in, in, in that, he was wrong. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's no two ways about it. Here, Paul was wrong to submit. But I put it to you, because I too am a coward, and it's natural for me to empathise with the coward in other people. I can appreciate exactly what Paul felt. He felt outnumbered, he felt, what's the point, I'm not going to be here long, I'm going to submit, I'm going to give in, it's not worth the hassle, right? Now he was wrong to do it, he did it for a quiet life, and he probably did it because he loved them, but nevertheless it was wrong, because it sent out wrong signals, it, it, was, it confused people. But, but, but then here, here's the main point. Now we're going to pick up the story in verse 27. We read up to verse 26, the bit with James, like, you know, sort of saying, Paul, here's what you've got to do, blah, blah, blah. And Paul goes and does it, all the old purification rites. And the Jerusalem church had made Paul do this because they worried about the trouble. Now, verse 27 to 31, and this is the main point. When the seven days were almost completed, i.e., you know, this is Paul doing all his ultra-Jewish bit, oh, look at me, I'm under the law again, it's all right, lads, okay. The Jews from Asia, who had seen him in the temple, stirred up the crowd and laid hands on him, and they weren't praying for him to be baptised in the Spirit either, <laughs> crying out, men of Israel, help, this is the man who is teaching men everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he also brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. That, that was a lie. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was aroused and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were trying to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now then, the Jerusalem church feared trouble because Paul was known to be a Jew who wasn't under the law, right? They didn't want the trouble. They were compromising. So they said, Paul, put yourself back under the law. Do a bit of a high-profile mosaic thing, and this will avert the trouble. Paul did that. He was wrong to do it. They bullied him into it. He was wrong to do it. Here's the main point. The trouble wasn't averted anyway. You see the point? Paul put himself back under the law, allowed himself to be bullied by the leaders of the Jerusalem church, who were fearing the trouble that was going to happen with Paul in town. And it was a massive compromise and it was wrong. They did it to keep the peace. It didn't work. That's the point. The whole thing was a total fiasco. It didn't work. It was a pointless exercise in the compromise of God's word in order to appease people who don't like what God's word says. And it doesn't work. Because the point is, compromise on one bit of the Bible today so people don't get upset, fine. But eventually the day is going to come when you hit a bit, you won't compromise and they're going to get just as upset. See what I mean? 
And so there's a real lesson to be learned here. And I think Paul learned his lesson here. I think, I think James did as well. It did <coughs> not work, and compromise doesn't. Okay. So then, we're seeing here Paul was wrong to submit to James in this. Um, but I don't think he's being as naughty as Peter, because Peter acted hypocritically towards Gentile Christians. And, uh, and I don't think he was being as hypocritical as James and the Jerusalem church either. Um, I, 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 I think almost that given the circumstances in this issue, mm. Paul, Paul can be excused yeah. almost, because he was totally outnumbered mm. by the apostles and elders in the Jerusalem church, the founding church, with the men in it who actually walked with Jesus physically. What chance did he have? He wasn't required to compromise his position towards Gentile Christians and so, you know, I sort of feel almost that we can excuse him. He was bullied into it. He didn't really have a chance. So, in this Acts 21, I'd more or less be inclined to virtually exonerate Paul and say in that instance, what choice did he have? But go to Acts 16 now. This might help you to understand why what we've just read was so tough. What a tough way to learn your lesson, because Paul nearly got killed and the Jerusalem church ended up in a riot situation. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. And he, this is Paul, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And it was the father's religion and customs that won out. So, Timothy, though half Jewish, was not circumcised. He wasn't under the law. He was well spoken of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him in ministry. He, Paul knew that Timothy was going to be used by God, and indeed he was, to lead plant churches and to lead them. And Paul took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And I don't exonerate Paul for that at all, because that was Paul doing exactly what James had done. Is he? Paul all those years withstanding the influences of the Jerusalem church with their Judaizing tendencies, he still had it in him. And the first time he had a half-Gentile bloke working with him, Paul had him circumcised. Can you believe it? But this is, it's how strong the, the law was in these people. They were Jews. And in regards to this, all I can say is poor old Timothy. <laughs> you know, my, my, my sympathies are entirely with him. Now, what are we seeing here? Can you see what I mean? That this is a minefield. This is, yeah, this is like two, two political parties, isn't it, almost? And yet, my goodness, talk about the pot calling the kettle black. And, you see, one of the things that comes out of this, I mean, yeah, we can see that James is a bully. We can see that Paul's a bit of a hypocrite as well, can't we, at certain points. What are we seeing here? We're seeing that these were men who had to be dealt with by God just like us. They were sinners too, just like us. And they were still sinners after they got born again. And they were still sinners after they were mature believers. 
they made mistakes. They compromised. They bottled out at times and did very, very wrong things. They gave in to pride. They could be stubborn and they could treat people very unfairly and with very short shrift. James bullied Paul into a Jewish purification ritual because he wanted an easy life. And Paul's presence in Jerusalem might cause trouble. And James didn't want trouble. So he ganged up with the other leaders in his church and they bullied Paul into doing something that was wrong. But nevertheless, Paul did it. But it didn't work because the trouble that they were trying to avoid by sinful means happened anyway. All right. Peter put the Antiochian Christians out of fellowship for no other reason that they weren't Jews. Well, can you imagine that? You know, sort of like, there you are, a Gentile, and there's a Jewish brother amongst you, and suddenly he's put you out of fellowship, he won't have anything to do with you because you're a Gentile, because you haven't become a Jew. That's, that's what Peter did. And again, he did that for no other reason than he was more worried about what his own church thought than these lovely believers that he was having fellowship with. He bottled out fear, all that sort of thing. And Paul, who it seemed through most of this study, who had held the standard high so gallantly, well, Paul, we find him making Timothy's eyes water for absolutely no other reasons than wanting the Jews in the area to think well of him. So, you know, what a, what a motley crew. I mean, what a shower. But, aren't we? You see? And this encourages me. I, I think it's great. Somehow, this is the way it ought to be. And incidentally, the reason I think that they had, you know, that, that in Acts 21, when, when James and that bullied Paul into submitting, and Paul did, and, and you know, and then all the trouble broke afterwards, and, and, and probably more so than if they hadn't have tried to compromise. The reason I think God was dealing with them so tough there was in view of the fact of what Paul had done to, to Timothy a while earlier. And I think in Acts chapter 21, God wanted to say, look, you know, you, you have got to get the message. You lovely, gorgeous, I love you Jewish Christians, you have got to get the message. You are not under law. It was wrecking, it was, it was a strain in the church that was always there and that Satan was always able to use. And I think God got to the point where he said, enough is enough. This has got to stop, all right? It's really got to stop. And uh, so I'm encouraged by it, you know, to see these guys. You know, what a mess. What a shower. What a crew. And yet, look what God was doing through them. You see? So we, we can identify with their sin, and they're mucking it up, and they're bottling out, and they're, you know, sort of what have you. All right? We can identify with that. But also, that means we can hope that God will do through us what he did through them. They were no different to us. Sinners, just the same as us. I'm encouraged by it. But of course, we can't leave it there, can we? Or I don't think we can, because if, if that's the whole story, 
I mean, if that was just the whole story, you know, like through to the end of the New Testament, to its closing pages, then that, that wouldn't be good enough. You see what I mean? Because, after all, the question is this, did the Mosaic Law ever get settled? Did it ever get settled in the early church? Did James ever get sorted out on it? Did he ever get his head straight over it? Because if James got his head straight over it, then we know the Jerusalem church did as well. Did, did this issue ever get resolved, or were they just slugging it out to the very end? Now, I would find it unsatisfying if one's study of the Bible throughout was that they were, you know, like, come the end of the New Testament and they were still slugging it out. But uh, in actual fact, I, I can say to you that it wasn't like that. Eventually, and I think very possibly as a result of what happened in Acts 21, but eventually the issue did get resolved, all right. And, um, and of course, it was Paul's teaching that was eventually recognised by James and his lot to be correct. Uh, we've already seen that Paul himself didn't necessarily live consistently with his own teaching, because he, he circumcised poor old Timothy. But nevertheless, it was Paul's teaching, which was of course the teaching of Jesus, that eventually won out. Now, how do we know that? Or how can I know that? Well, I can demonstrate it to you quite simply. And I can do so through the letters of James and the letters of Peter. Because remember, I mean, Peter, Peter true to form, he was the billiard ball, really, Peter was, wasn't he? I mean, when Peter was with Paul, bless him, I mean, Peter had that fellowship with anyone. But bring James along, and Peter was thinking twice about it. I mean, you know, sort of Peter was, I love Peter, because basically everything that can go wrong went wrong for him, and I can identify with that. And, and, and although Peter was a very definite and solid character, there was another sense in which he was a bit of a chameleon, and, and he was very easily influenced. And, um, you know, so I mean, Peter kind of, I think, went with whoever was winning the argument at any, or whoever he thought was winning the argument at any one time. But the real issue is with James, okay? But the point is, we can turn to the letters of Peter and the letter of James, which were all written after this, after all this history, the, you know, it came later than that, and we can say, well, look, what, what can we know about this issue from their letters? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, Paul. Uh, sorry, first of all, Peter. Now, Peter wrote two letters. Letters to churches, and these churches would have had a lot of Jews in them, and stuff like that. Now then, in the two letters that he wrote, he did not mention the law once. You see, he's writing letters to churches, instructing them in every, all that they need to know in order to be Christians. He doesn't even mention the law of Moses. It's like he's forgotten it was ever there. Not one mention of the law of Moses in either of the letters of Peter. Not one word to suggest that Judaism was the way for God's church, because of course it wasn't. The church replaced Judaism. Judaism wasn't the way for the church. The church, the new covenant, replaced it. The old covenant, all right. Peter, in his letters, writes pure, 100% new covenant grace. No mention of law whatsoever. But let's see one thing he did write. If you find his second letter to Peter, and remember that the two real opponents were, were, were James in the red corner and Paul in the blue corner. 
That was the real, that was the real battle that was going on. Not that it was personal between them, but Paul represented one strain of thought and James the other. So, if Peter was going to endorse someone, he would be endorsing a strain of thought, alright? Now then, in, in, in 2 Peter, verse 3, and let's find verse 15. And count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation. So also, our beloved brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom giving him speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, there you've got Peter doesn't mention the law once, makes no, not the slightest hint that Judaism was the way forward for Jewish Christians, all right? And he endorses Paul's letters and therefore Paul's teaching. And Peter would have known them. He'd have read Galatians. He'd have known it off by heart, I expect. He endorses Paul's teaching as being Scripture, the divine word of God itself. So then, which side of the argument did Peter end up on? We're not under law, but under grace. All right? What about um, James? Where did he end up? Well, first of all, before I answer that, one thing that Paul wrote. Go to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. And find verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, I run to grace, but that doesn't mean that you can carry on in sin so that grace may abound. No license, that's what he's saying. But through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now he's quoting there from Leviticus chapter 19. And Paul says, look, in regards to the law, chaps, all right, that's what's left of it. See, now that Jesus has come and died, and been raised from the dead, and we got a new covenant, what's left of the old covenant? He said, that's what's left, that you love your neighbour as yourself. And you can do it now, because God's love has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You can do it. So he says, that is what is left of the law. That is what we're under. All right? Now then, bearing that in mind, okay, um, go to James, just a little dippy, Find the letter of James. Again, it was written after all this history of Acts 21 and all that, written after all that, all right. James chapter 2, let's just read verse 8. He says, If you really fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you do well. So, as we go through the letter of James, we're going to see that James doesn't mention the law at all. The only law he mentions is, and we saw this in the Law and Grace series, is not the law of Moses, not the Mosaic law, not the Old Covenant, but he refers to the royal law, or the law of freedom. And that is what the New Covenant is called. So here, we find that James is now in 
utter agreement with Paul. The only thing that is left from the old covenant is love your neighbour as yourself. He's in utter, total agreement with Galatians. And yet Galatians would have probably been an epistle at one point that he didn't have great, great problems with, as it were. Um, let's read verse 10 and 11. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who says don't commit adultery also said don't kill. If you don't commit adultery but kill, you've become a transgressor of the law. And he's saying there, the law is useless, can't change you. The law is just there to be obeyed in its entirety. Well, you can't do it. It's no use obeying that bit, but not that bit. You've blown it. So here, he's talking about, you know, the, the utter uselessness of the law. And then in verse 12, he says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What's the law of liberty? The new covenant. Freedom from sin because Jesus lives in us. You know, there is therefore now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And, you know, Paul, Paul talks about, you know, the, the, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. See? So, he, James is 100% now with Paul, the law of liberty. And, uh, you know, so there you go. It was all sorted out eventually. It took a while. It took quite a long time. It took years. But it was sorted out, and that is what really, Okay, let's, let's just read um, in chapter 3 something that James says. And this will help us to realise that when these guys wrote their letters, they knew what they were talking about. They were talking from experience. Look what he says. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Uh, James was a teacher, had been from the word go. For you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness. For we all make many mistakes. Yeah. And what James is saying, look, you make loads of mistakes. I make loads of mistakes as well. But I get a worse kicking than you do because I'm a teacher. And he did. Look what happened in Acts 21. Riot. See? You know, and James left to lick his wounds and to learn his lesson. Oh, blimey, did that happen because I wanted a quiet life? See? <laughs> These guys, they, they, you know, when they're writing in how God deals with us, which is what they're doing, it's because they knew how God had dealt with them. There's reality in every word they wrote. And so, therefore, starting to sum up the introduction tonight, what have we got? In the letter of James, we have a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus. He was an elder in the Jerusalem church. He was an apostle in the sense of apostle type three cross-reference Church Life Society, uh, society. <laughs> Church Life Series. He, he was a man who was looked up to, he was respected, he was proven as a man who was faithful to the Lord, loved the Lord, faced many sacrifices, but he was also a man who could get things very wrong, and sometimes seriously wrong, even so seriously and very wrong that he could be prepared to bully Paul the Apostle into doing something that was wrong. But James was prepared to do it. He felt that strongly about it. He wanted a quiet life that much. The law meant that much to him. And that was a serious thing to do wrong, you know. 
James really made serious errors. We've seen Paul. You know, I mean, Paul, he's, he's kind of all the time, he's trying to resist the false teaching come out, you know, coming out of the Jerusalem church. And when he goes and visits there, he kind of gently stands against it, tries to have influence over it. Then the law shows him that Timothy is supposed to work with him, so he has Timothy circumcised. Well, are we talking hypocrisy there or what? We're talking hypocrisy there. But can you see, we're given real men. And, and here in James, we have, yeah, a, a, a man who could be very wrong, but a man who was open-minded enough to realise that he was wrong. And although it took him a while to get there, by the time he wrote his letter, he was not in any way at all a Judaizer. He was a strictly new covenant believer. And the old covenant was where it belonged, dead. All right? So he got there. He was open-minded enough to realise that he was wrong, and he was humble enough to admit it as well. Because when he wrote his letter, again, he was endorsing Paul. You see? He wasn't too proud. It wasn't, you know, sort of like that he eventually realised what was right, and, uh, you know, but then thought, oh, well, you know, sort of like, I'll try and do this in some kind of subversive so people hardly notice. He, he was quite happy to come clean once he really knew that he was wrong. And uh, that's important. That's what we must be like. The Lord doesn't ask us not to sin. Because he knows we will. Well, he asks us not to, but the Lord doesn't expect us to be sin-free. That's what I meant to say. Um, he doesn't expect us to never make mistakes. But what the Lord expects of us, like he did with these guys, is that when we know we've done wrong, that we come clean and admit it. Be humble enough to put it right. And then he can keep using us. And uh, so there you have it, James, right old character, someone we can really identify with. And uh, next time, with, with all that under our belts, as it were, we'll actually move on to look at the actual letter that um, he wrote. So we'll proceed to the actual text next time.